0: To JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigal and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, we're looking at the movie Parenthood with Steve Martin. We're seeing three generations of anxiety and coping systems in this movie. And we are also speaking about siblings, stress, fathers and sons, and how our unfinished business starts family fires. We also delve into the prevalence of anxious therapists and Avram's deep love of Oreos. Here we go.
1: Okay. How's it How going? Does my LA? new
0: microphone sound.
1: You sound great.
0: Woo! That's so awesome.
1: It's so it's it, the difference is unbelievable. Really?
0: Okay. Oh that's yeah. Super cool. That's yeah. Cool. Last
1: time, um, sometimes it would scratch a little bit uh, on your shirt. Um, right. But it, what's nice about this is the evolution of the podcast. You'll hear the difference in uh, in sound quality. Yeah. When we first started recording, uh, at maybe it was like. Nine weeks into the pandemic, I was using the AirPod Pros. The mic quality was eh. Uh-huh. These an- Sennheisers I like a lot better. I've listened to both podcasts, and I think the sound is a lot better with these. And your right. sound quality is improved. So um, I figure we should be getting a call from Apple at any time <laughs> soon that our podcast will be featured.
0: <laughs> For the sound quality alone.
1: Exactly. That's one of the great podcasts. Forget the
0: content. This highly produced uh, piece of work. Amazing. Hey,
1: one sec. Where did my uh, my notes go? Oh, here's my notes. Okay. Oh Excellent. My gosh. Okay. I
0: have so many notes on this. I can't even imagine. Did you finish the geniogram?
1: I did. Um, so what I'm going to be doing is uh, the family diagrams that I'm making are for my own purpose until my newsletter. In my newsletter that's gonna be coming out January 10th will be the first one um, called Stuck, Unstuck. I'm gonna be using notes that I make for our podcast, some of which didn't make it into the podcast and describing, picking one character from a film and describing how they're stuck, Mm. showing how they get, showing why their relationship is stuck or, or how their relationship is stuck using the family diagram. And then the unstuck portion of the newsletter will be questions to think about for oneself and also for the characters in terms of things to think about, of ways to um, manage uh, how you're stuck in your relationship, because, you know, clients have, will say to me, Avram, is there, you know, you talk about family systems, but what about psychodynamic psychotherapy or meditation or uh, medication, or isn't there more than one way to deal with this? And of course the answer is yes, absolutely. You know, if someone, you know, I had a client, Ellie, in my office who would read Tehillim Psalms be- before they came into my session and helped ground right. them. And if prayer or Tehillim work for you, y- you know, w- what is it? Go with God or go, you know, go with, you know, go, like just right, I hear you. works like for you.
0: Saying, like, you know, every, if you're, if one of the basis of how you're working with people is letting people know that when they're in a state of anxiety, they're not always making great choices and they're passing down those not great coping skills to the rest of the family. So if they have healthy coping skills or things that work for them, then I I think that's what you're saying, right? Like whatever healthy coping skills you have, you should use. And whether that's meditation, whether that's yoga, whether that's um, Tahilam, like whatever it is that helps you regulate your own anxiety is a positive thing.
1: Look, I mean, I think. By the way, if if this uh, podcast is being sponsored by Post uh, Raisin Bran, should we mention this, Elliot? I hear the. I hear you say, what a professional podcast! I'm I hear so the sorry. cereal bowl.
0: I did not have time to eat this morning, so I'm having my Israeli oatmeal, which is like oatmeal with tahina and raisins and a bit of maple syrup. So. Can you really hear me chewing? I'll stop now.
1: No, I didn't hear the chewing. I heard the cereal, cereal bowl and like Pavlov's <laughs> dog, I'm starting to salivate now for, uh, for food. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll share this story, I'm sure I've shared it in a JFI talk, but I'll share it here. Uh, so what you know, what are we told about insomnia? You know We're told never, never do anything in bed unless you're sleeping or you know other things, right But never you, know, don't read, don't okay, so that's what we're told. The other thing that we're told is the science. The evidence says um, that if you can't sleep, get out of bed, right? Don't don't stay in bed and try to, you know, okay. So you hear all these things. I had a client. I have a, well, I, I had many clients over the years who struggled with insomnia. I had this one client struggling with insomnia and sleep issues. They went to sleep clinics. They were on different um, uh, types of um, sleeping aids um, with various degrees of um Of success, and um, so they uh, they had to move. Um, They had to move, and uh, they left um, uh, one province to uh, another. They had to drive. I forget across how many uh, uh, provinces, but they they ended up in um, a place where they didn't have a job. And they couldn't afford a bed, so they were sleeping on a mattress. Right. Very anxious. They didn't have work, so sleep was even a bigger problem than before. Right. So they were sleeping on a mattress, and it was the summer, and it was hot, and they didn't have air conditioning. And so they used the fan to sleep, and the fan was on the floor. And generally, if you sleep with a fan, you know, I guess you put it on a night table or something, and you, you but this fan was on the floor. And so they went to sleep at night, and they fell asleep like that. Mm-hmm. They woke up; they couldn't believe what was happening. And at first, I think uh, you know, um, we were speaking via uh, phone at this point with our sessions. They they said that they at first they thought it was the long traveling that it just exhausted them, but they hadn't uh, sleep, they had, they haven't had a good sleep like that in a while. It turns out. And it was through trial and error they realized something very interesting, fascinating actually. And and the folks who do the tapping, you know, um, is it EMDR? You EFT. know, I,
0: I, I, e, yeah, EFT.
1: So I think that's that's that sort of um, one version. I think this is the EMDR stuff. Oh, so where EMDR they,
0: uh, is where you move the eyes.
1: Okay, I, there's
0: no tapping. I thought there was tapping. Maybe they've put them together, I don't know. OK,
1: anyways, but it's, it's, it's some sort of you know idea um, where you're stimulating one thing, you're asking someone to recount a, a traumatic event, and somehow that muddles things up and dislodges the, uh, the, the trauma. What this individual found out was that because the fan was on the floor, it was moving their pillowcase like this and rubbing their head. And they couldn't focus on their worries And they couldn't focus on the reverberations of the pillow being moved by the fan at the same time. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't worry because they felt the slight uh, um, movement of the pillowcase. I wouldn't say they were cured, but they claimed they hadn't slept like that. And it was way past the honeymoon phase. I mean, this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. All this to say, I often tell the story to my clients. I recycle certain stories about how people change because it is incumbent upon all of us to find our way. That is our task. That's what Murray Bowen would say about people who are higher on the maturity scale. People who are higher on the maturity scale, they take into consideration what is normative advice about you know, parenting and marriage and this, but they're mature enough to know that my way might not be your way. Mm. And that it is my responsibility if I'm stuck in a way in my life to figure out how to get unstuck in my life. Mm -hmm. And I just want people to know who are listening to this that there are a lot of ways to um, uh, become more free and more creative um, uh, and and, and live a different way than what might be suggested by your pediatrician or your family doctor or a psychiatrist or me. And so I really try to be open when people ask me about how do I manage my panic attacks or my insomnia or my depression. Um, I I really try not to be too rigid in terms of what that might look like, but to be open to different things and try what I call self-experiments. Little mini experiments you try over a period of five to six weeks and you monitor um, some sort of monitoring. And often, Ellie, the, the the trick about so much of this kind of stuff is often the answers come when we're not looking. Like this individual who who tried every type of sleeping solution and they found it by accident.
0: Right. Right.
1: So it's a big mystery sometimes how people get unstuck and grow. Um, and um, anyways, so yeah, do you
0: or go? it's it's not not so much a mystery as much as it's a creative pursuit, right? We often think of it as something clinical, but it's actually more of an art. You know, you have to be creative with it. You have to be persistent with it. You have to fail and fail and then try something again and think outside the box. And so often, more often than not now, um, I think we talked about this. Like we were one of the movies we were watching. Oh, no, I was watching the new the Marvel series, Shields, Agents of Shields. And so one of the agents um, says to the people that work for him, they come to him and they're like, "We only have two options. The guy can either explode, or we can shoot him in the head." And 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 the head of Shield turns to them and says, "That's not acceptable. You have to find the third option." Hmm. And then they do. They find something that actually saves the guy's life. And da, da, da. But he's just like, no, I'm sorry. There must be a third option. And I've so much loved um, integrating that into my own work with myself, and then however I work with other people. Like, there's always a third option because these two aren't the ones. So there must be something else. It just means getting creative. It means. But I also think that you know, this guy who was able to figure out how to sleep. Probably was able to deal with everything else better simply because he was able to sleep. <laughs> like it's also hard to find third options when you're exhausted or in survival mode.
1: Oh, look! I mean, you know, if you have a molar that needs a filling, um, all of your focal. A, a lot of people will say, you know, we you don't think about your teeth until it hurts, right. you know, um, and then and then everything an ice cube, a breeze. All of your attention goes towards that pain, which is why which is why as critical as I am, and you've heard me uh, be critical about um, uh, some of the research and, Uh, I think the overhyping of of mindfulness meditation, specifically mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, the world of my uh, MBSR. Um, The fact is that if you can meditate, if that is a practice that you can adopt and you do it regularly, not reading the magazine, not reading mindful magazine, and, you know, but I mean, you, you are a regular practice of meditation. One of the benefits, and it's a big one, is the ability to uh, sit with discomfortable, discomforting states and watch them come and go.
0: That's right. Now,
1: how long does it take to learn how to be comfortable with discomfort? I would say more than two weeks. For sure. <laughs> so it is not easy. Yeah. However, however, it's possible. Um, anyways, yeah. So, uh, okay. Parent- should,
0: we, should, we, should we talk about the movie? yeah
1: let's um well i mean I, I think that some of the things we just touched on um could be found in the movie why yeah, don't you do sure. your uh, standing on um one foot uh, okay. introduction and then we'll get into it
0: okay so uh this week on pop parenting we are looking at the uh steve martin actually i can't even say it's a steve martin movie because it is a real um cast of incredible actors um so uh, Rick Moranis, um, uh, what's her name? Weist. Uh, yeah, go.
1: <laughs> um, one, no, I, I did that because people who are listening can't see us. And so if I'm interrupting you, they're going to think I'm a jerk. Um, one thing that's important to know, Ellie, you and I were talking, just a bit of background, how we came up with this movie. You and I right. were talking about the holiday season that's upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shared in my newsletter an abridged version of um, Monica McGoldrick, who is a, a sort of a fake famous uh, uh, author and family therapist in the family systems world. Um, she wrote, she wrote a, a bunch of books on family diagrams and genograms. In her latest book, she wrote something called The Relationship Rules. There are about 25 rules. They're oh, really
0: I love rules. that list. I that You used it once at one of the talks. It's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful list. What I did is I took the 25 and I took the 10 my 10 favorite ones that I think are applicable to the holiday season, and I abridged and edited some of them. Um, so that, um, um I, I just found that they, they were more uh, easy to understand with respect to uh, a family coming together in, in whatever way. And I I sent you a message um, asking you, What if we found a good film to talk about on the Pop Parenting podcast that relates to? however you're celebrating Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever you're celebrating, I think that you know we are, the, we are a good you know, medium to do that. So um, we threw around some names of movies and then you threw back at me something that can apply to everyone, regardless of um, your religion or spiritual leaning and, and parenthood. And I thought that was mm-hmm. a great choice because you could take what's happening in that movie. I think you picked a really good film for this because all of the dynamics that would happen at a passover seder or at a christmas dinner or at a thanksgiving dinner all is happening in this film yeah. Yeah. and it doesn't make a difference what religion you are if you're atheist whatever it is in this film so yeah. good choice 100%. please okay, so I i'm not
0: you. taking full credit for this because um for those of you who uh who know me we have like on uh, often on shabbat mornings or afternoons we sit outside at one of our friends houses and Um, drink tea and um, just schmooze a little bit so this came up in conversation. We were thinking about what the next movies are. So really, um, it's a shout out to uh, Mikey and Jody and Arit because, like, together we sort of brainstormed and and I think Jody's the one that brought up this film. So it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we've never done that film. So it was a real, per- it, it was a group effort by all of our crew. So,
1: and by the way, someone it. else suggested some uh, a movie, and I can't believe Ellie, we didn't think about this because this is a perfect teen flick, but. I think very realistic. Dazed and Confused.
0: Oh my God.
1: Ellie. (laughs) Dazed and Confused. We have to do Dazed and Confused. (laughs) If for no other
0: reason. I'm really happy in my life that I would never have to see that movie again, but okay.
1: (laughs) Why? Why? How come? How come?
0: I don't know. I I actually wasn't super impressed with it when I first saw it. It didn't really, oh, really? like, yeah, was, I was kind of like, yeah, what a, like it just, maybe it was just too close to like real life, but that, you know, I, I don't know. I just, for some reason it didn't like blow my mind, but maybe it'll be different now. So yes, okay, Dazed and Confused is on the list. I like I think
1: that. it reminded me of when I, I mean, uh, as much as Pretty in Pink and John Hughes films um, touched me at a certain level, Dazed and Confused really sort of captured the kids who were older than me. So yeah. if I was in high school in the 80s, there's that late 70s, early 80s crowd. And there was that one pit. I, I, it was the smoking pit at yeah. Shawmany High High School where everyone yeah. you know smoked their marijuana Same. and cigarettes.
0: Yeah, that days the, and confused okay. really
1: kept. Ca- every high school had that, right? Yeah. You go to the forest. I thought it captured sort of that uh, scene well and and Alice Cooper's um school's out for summer it really brought back those memories of when school went in okay anyways, that's totally. not the movie we're talking about now
0: okay all right so uh yes yeah. so we'll come actually that's maybe a fun idea we can talk a lot about my high school days if we use that movie um all right so parenthood here we go um so this movie came out in the late 80s, early 90s. It's um, It was a Steve Martin um, vehicle. It was really a movie that came out that I think they were probably surprised at how successful it was. They probably figured that, It would be more of an older crowd that would be into this movie, but I remember all of us loving this movie. Number one, because it was in the height of Steve Martin's um, fame in terms of his films, so we were all crushing on Steve Martin. Um, And I think this movie just spoke to, like you said, it, it speaks to families across the board, the struggles, the beauty the things that you always wanted with your family, but maybe don't have, the things that you don't want in your family that you do have, it really gives the whole, so it's really the story of, it's kind of following uh, one particular family. So you see three generations of the same family, the grandmother, actually you see four generations because there's the great grandmother who sort of shuffles around and lives with all of them at some point. You see the grandfather and the grandmother um, and they're three kids so it's gil is steve martin's character sorry they have four kids mm-hmm. um i'm not going to remember names now but so it's, it's helen helen is and... the
1: helen is the eldest yeah gil is the second eldest um susan um who is married to uh nathan Referent. they're yeah, Mert Moranis, Moranis, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, with the uh, with the Smarty Pants kid, yep. and uh, Larry is the f up. Uh, yeah. the gambling. He has a He's gambling addiction. Sheet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And then we see they all have kids in in different sort of amounts and ages, and we basically are watching the dynamics between parents and kids, between siblings. We're really just watching this really lovely. Um, funny kooky exploration of the main character really Gil where he's struggling because he felt his father was a terrible father he's worried that he's also a terrible father because we get to see all these crazy images in his head every time his kid gets upset about something Mm -hmm. um like the shooter off the top of the roof of the of the university
1: (laughs) which which by the way um when did Columbine happen
0: When was that? That That was way after, right?
1: And then Columbine had a whole bunch of copycat uh, type shootings. I, you know, Ellie, when I saw that film, that scene in the film in 1989, I laughed and I laughed. I don't know about you when I saw, I hadn't seen that film, by the way, since probably 1989. When I saw that shooting scene now in 2020, it really sort of gave me, um, it was really weird. It was like watching, um, uh, a lighter version of um, who who did the Columbine movie called Columbine? Oh,
0: uh, Oliver um, Stone was it? Oliver Stone who did it? No, uh, no, it was. Oh no, Michael, it's the guy Michael uh, Moore. Michael Moore.
1: No, 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 the, no the not the nonfiction. Oh. Uh, the the fiction version of Columbine oh, was done I by what's his name? Who did um, who directed um, uh, Good Will Hunting? Who was that again? Gus van, Gus van, Gus van uh, yeah, he did a movie called Columbine. That. Wow, and it's pretty, you know, it's pretty jarring. But I, yeah. I that scene in 2020, I found a little jarring yeah. uh, watching because um, yeah. while it was playful and and sort of a fantasy, then it really became quite real. For, and it still is. It's still well, every it now and
0: wasn't it. just fantasy then, because what they had seen was there, you know, they already had the term going postal, which oh, was yeah. a postal right. worker that had gone up to a bell tower. It was a, a replay of a of something that had happened many years earlier. And it was an adult, it wasn't a kid.
1: And Michael Douglas did Falling Down. Remember the movie Falling yeah. Down, where yeah. th- that also played on the idea of of someone just, you know, something snapping, snapping in someone's head and just, you know shooting up a whole bunch of people Yeah, so that was already
0: part of the public discourse it was already part of but there must have been a certain amount of time that had gone by where they could actually just make a joke about it but yeah certainly it, it wasn't uh even though it has echoes of it, it wasn't the same like as a high school shooting, which is what we had been seeing. So, but yeah, for sure. When I was watching that, I was like, Yeah, we don't make jokes about that anymore. That's like e-
1: even a polytechnic polytechnique with the women yeah. who were killed in Montreal, right. that was that was I think because I was in university, so that was um... That was the mid-90s or, or right. early to mid-90s. I forget the year, but uh, I, my friends and I were actually three blocks away from the shooting.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, The ambulances and police cars were running by. We're like, what the hell is going on outside? Um, so in a way, that, that was unintended, but thinking like an author, you know, foreshadowing of yeah. what we were going to be dealing with um, and still are. In many ways, with the you know, police officers in high schools and metal detectors and,
0: yeah, and I think anxiety. It, also, it illustrates in our mind the worst case scenario. That's where he went for worst case scenario. And this really is one of the worst case scenarios. It's mm-hmm. it's a horrifying prospect. Um, not just that your kid could be in the line of fire, but that your kid could be the one firing the gun.
1: And that somehow and you, you you terrifying. know, your your poor an- parenting
0: right. or or
1: what i hear more often in my practice your poor genes you know people will say this to mm-hmm. me and i think there's an element of that you know we are just a a you know a combination of psychology biology and upbringing and you know it's uh uh so you know the, the amount of guilt and the amount of pressure some parents and i would say by some i mean most put on themselves in mm-hmm. terms of um uh, the feeling the yoke of either success or failure or whatever the hell, and that's that's the fusion part of, between a parent and a child. Yeah. Um, the amount of pressure parents that I work with put on themselves uh, for yeah. that is tremendous. And I think Steve Martin or whoever wrote that uh, in the film did a great job, but please we're still yeah. on one foot.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, so it really, he's our guide to the inner world of all of the characters of this film where we're really seeing him struggle with stress it's so perfect for what we've been talking about because suddenly it's manifesting in his own kid. And there's this scene where he's like washing his hands obsessively and he's like, I don't understand. Why is my kid so stressed? Why is he so, you know, obsessive? And his, and his, like, and his wife says, I, I wonder. Know.
1: Yeah, 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 so, exactly. So you know,
0: It's really a, a watching of things play out through the generations, through the relationships, through the conflicts and um and how, you know, in the end, the, the sort of messiness of it, um, but that it can be also, you know, life is beautiful, that it can also be, be very special. So I think if you haven't seen the movie, there's so many different plot lines, but there's there's it's a beautiful film that was really well done. And, and I think stands the test of time today, other than that school shooting scene. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was surprised. And don't watch
0: it with kids, because there is stuff in it that maybe are not so, like, appropriate to watch with kids. I was quite surprised.
1: (laughs) You know, when I watched the film, I was surprised. I got emotional at, um, you know, I squeezed out a couple of tears at certain scenes. It it took me Mm. by surprise. And I thought about something you said before I watched the film. You, We were talking on Facebook Messenger. You mentioned something about... um, uh, the film impacting you differently now that you have kids mm-hmm. um, and I agree with you that's what happened with me too when I saw Parenthood I you know I, I was my you know as, as I discussed in my books a single commitment phobic guy who couldn't even imagine <laughs> uh, being married and having kids um, right. and now that I have kids uh, there were certain scenes in that film that really touched a nerve mm-hmm. um, and I think criticism of the film and there's a lot if you go online actually the film gets panned by critics um, I wonder how many have kids and how many don't. Yep. Uh, you know. Um, but OK, so where, where would you like to dig in?
0: Um, hmm. Well, I guess the very first scene of the movie opens up with um, Gil as a young kid being taken to a baseball game by his father. But his father always pays the ushers at the game to watch his kid while he sort of goes off and do some does something else. Um, So maybe we start with that kind of first initial relationship which is between Gil and his father where Gil clearly grows up realizing his father's kind of a jerk in that way like his dad doesn't provide what he feels should be a great dad role model and so Gil takes it upon himself to become superhero dad.
1: So let's, I, I want to share something because I think that is something you don't see in movies often, uh, the multi-generational part to our problems. And, and the film opens with this idea, we are going to let the viewers know that there is a generational component to whatever you're about to watch. That's very, very rare to mm-hmm. see in a movie. Actually, I would say it's very, very rare for your average mental health worker to think about their clients in that way. Unless you have training in that, you're not thinking multi-generationally, okay? Right. You're, you're just not. Most CBT therapists, excellent as they are in doing their behavioral work, are thinking about the individual. And, and you'll even hear, by the way, I've been to many CBT lectures where the the professor, the lecturer will say, you know, the past is the past. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay. Um, so let me, I'm just going to uh, uh, paraphrase my late supervisor, my co author of my most recent book. He said something about family diagrams that I, I never have forgotten. I asked him when we were doing the book, we're writing the book, um, you know, does he still do them? because he was saying that it's very important for a therapist to do it. he He goes, he does. And he goes, but not for all the reasons you might think. And he said, one of the reasons why he uses family diagrams with couple work when couples come into their office. And by the way, when he said this to me many, many years ago, 10 years ago, it's amazing how true this is. When a couple comes into your office, especially in a first session, they are almost always focused on their, themselves or their partner so they walk into the session thinking either I'm broken or I married a monster every session right. starts that way <laughs> yeah. there's variations of that but very rarely do I hear them go back a generation if ever okay it always starts with I'm a horrible person or I'm married to a horrible person <laughs> it's right. some, some version of right. that okay
0: um, <laughs> in blank here
1: yeah. And David said the task of a therapist when you're working with a couple, or else you're not going to be successful in your work, is to expand the story beyond the self or your partner. Mm-hmm. To expand, because when you expand the story, it becomes less personal. For example, look, Ellie, if, if I say to you, you know, if, if I say, um, I'm going to think of something right now. Okay. I'll, okay for, for example, I have a sweet tooth. Okay. I like chocolate. I love chocolate. I tell my wife, I don't you know just what can't. You're
0: talking about. I don't understand that at all. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, tell, I
1: tell Elisa, if you buy Oreo cookies and you leave them in sight of me, I can't have two. I just, it's just, I'm not going to have two. Okay? Well, what's interesting is that Does that mean um, like
0: a full sleeve experience or like the entire box? <laughs> well,
1: what happens is I start with one sleeve, and then I think to myself, like, how bad is it if I go for a second sleeve? Right now that I'm here. I mean, <laughs> there's worse problems in the world, in the world. Right. <laughs> and, and then the next thing you know, I polished off the whole thing and I'm doing a whole bunch of push-ups to my in my room. To to um, so my mom, uh, my, my mom, when I was growing up, my uh, my mom also had a sweet tooth and she she goes back to her childhood where her parents. Um, uh, wouldn't buy snacks for the kids, and so she would eat sugar cubes straight from uh, um, for tea. She would just wow. pop them in her mouth like candy. She would eat sugar cubes, um, and so and I'm sure you know uh, my bubby, her mother. You, you can go back. Yeah. When you hear that story, as much as of course there is something that I need to take personal responsibility for, it it sort of it it lets you know. That uh, what you're up against. It also lets you know it isn't a personal failing on your part. There isn't something that you came up with because you're such a nasty, disgusting. It's like, huh? This goes back at least three, four generations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now it doesn't mean the problem is solved, and it doesn't, but at least lets you know, okay, that it's more than just me or my parent and their parenting. You know, people say, oh, you're blaming right. the parents. No. How about we think about this? How far back do you want to go with this thing? And so um, David said, when you do a family diagram and the couple is sitting there and you ask the husband, tell me about your parents' marriage. And he says, oh, they had a crappy marriage. And you just shut up. You'll see their face go, huh, so they had a pretty crappy marriage. My marriage ain't too hot. And all of a sudden the focus starts to move a little bit away from the your partner. And now you're now it doesn't always happen this way, but now you're starting to think, hmm, there's a pattern here. Yep. And humans, humans are pattern recognition machines. We like, yep. we like patterns, we like puzzles, we like to try to figure things out. You give couples a shot at this thing because it's couples work as hard, but you give couples at least a shot if you can expand the narrative beyond yourself or your partner. So what this movie does, and I think it does very well, I think it slips at times. I think it does get into a sort of a cause and effect, evil and good people, especially with um with Larry. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I think it does get into that. However, it's setting up the scene here that suggests at least three generations of fathers, Mm. right? Well, to, well, at this, that point, it was like two because it was um, Steve Martin's father, Right, Steve Martin as a kid. But it does leave the viewer, it left me with the question, if his father was paying the usher to go off and do whatever the hell he was doing, what was his father like? So that would be Steve Martin's um, uh, grandfather, yeah. Right. okay? Because you have to ask that question at that point. You have to ask the question, well, did the father just do it on his own? Like, did he just learn how to pay an usher? Like, is it something he came up on his own? I mean, when someone comes to my office, they say they hit their kid and they feel horrible about it. Right. My first question or I'm thinking about is, "Hmm, I wonder if they were hit when they were kids. Right. Like nine times out of 10, the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. Or they'll say like, you know, like my mom or my dad had trouble regulating their anxiety and it was like chaos in my house. So the film sets us up for that. And uh, I agree with you. I think it was a great way to sort of, um, uh, you know, cleanse the palate and prepare the viewership for um, these aren't devils and angels in this family. They're just bloody human beings trying to make sense of this thing called marriage and parenting and, you know, relationships. And yeah, so excellent.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really, really something. And that he's already thinking about it, right? He's already thinking about it on in terms of like when he calls the usher an amalgam right like he's already like thinking through like this has affected me in some way but then right away what do we see we see that gill's son is they're being hauled into the principal's office (laughs) saying that their son should be in special education because he's so tense and he tends to cry a lot um so we're right away now seeing that direct line like you said from the grandfather to the father to the son there's something going on where they're not coping well.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that scene for a second, actually. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Ellie, whenever you're, uh, whenever you're a professional in a certain area and you watch films portray that type of professional, um, it's very um, difficult to sit through when you see something being done so badly. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, it's always interesting asking my wife when we watch Doctors – who are being portrayed on TV um, or, um, or movie, or when I, when I watch a war movie and I go into IMDB and read real soldiers talking about what a real soldier would do, I find that fascinating. You know, Um, the scene where, and, and any parent who's been called by the principal or a teacher saying, we need to speak about your kid can relate to that scene. It's a very anxiety Provoking. I don't care how mature you are. When you get called in to speak about your kid, right. that your kid might have a problem in some way, it's very anxiety provoking. What we know is the more our anxiety goes up, okay, it's a system that chances are if a principal is calling you in, their anxiety is up too. They're human mm-hmm. beings too. So right. what do we have here? We have a situation where the principal is likely anxious. How do we know? Well, Ron Howard doesn't exactly share with you in this, but there's hints. And here's what I would, this is what I noticed. Mom and dad show up to the principal's office to talk about their kid. They're already super anxious. The principal does no favors to this family when they call the therapist into the room who says, I've been working with your kid for months. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine, Yeah. we talk about triangles. Talk about being on the outside of a triangle. Right. Your kid is working with a therapist and the first time you're finding out about this is in the principal's office. Right. That now, they, this And would there's never... an
0: issue and they're saying you have to take him out of the school. Yeah, it's just now, nailing. This would
1: him. never happen. Let me be clear. Right. This would just right. never happen. Okay. Although I don't know, maybe the writer, because my understanding is there were three or four writers. Um, if you read the Wikipedia entry, there were three or four writers and they, they, they um, brought in their own childhood experiences into the film. So a lot of these are based on, it was an amalgamation of different childhood experiences of the writers. who Yeah, and I think
0: looking at that time, there was no kid glove um, treatment in that time of being careful of not saying the right thing. Like a lot of the time, look, I mean, even when we saw in Dead Poets Society, when they call the parents in and get this kid to sign a contract talking about, you know, kicking his teacher out of the school, and the parents are like, sign the sign the contract. Like there was kind of no trying to make it easier for anyone, I it seems, in that time. We're in a really different place right now, culturally, where everything is very politically correct and trying to say the right thing and be having being empathetic and like all of these things, which has its beauties but also has its drawbacks. And and I but I like what you're saying too, because I think it hits on something that we don't address, which is often not often, but sometimes when a teacher calls about a kid, the teacher's also anxious and not coping well. And I think that that doesn't get spoken about because we want to back up our teachers and have a united front as adults and present. And of course, if your kid is acting out, then there's gonna be uh, some way to address that, but nobody ever really addresses though that the teacher also isn't coping well in their environment. Um, And it isn't necessarily the way they're addressing it isn't necessarily going to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, uh, Ellie, I'll tell you something, what you're talking about right now. It's so important. Um, when I used to work at CAMH, uh, I worked, I was the supervisor of a program where we would give talks about addiction and mental health issues in high school. So the kids would come in for an assembly. My staff would go and they would talk about whatever, schizophrenia or depression or whatever the case may be. But I would do the talks for the important, like the, the teachers or the principals, right? So because I was i was the supervisor of the program. So anyways, they called me in to do a talk about um I don't know mental health issues in one of the high schools, um, and there was about forty teachers there. It was a lunch and learn. Uh, I think I made it three minutes into my talk, and a teacher asked a question, and it was about their mental health issues. And the next thing, the entire forty-five minutes was spent about why are we not why are we neglected in this? We're so anxious. And what I heard from these teachers is that they're asking us to be the parent, the police officer, yep, the guidance counselor, the tutor the, and they're like, we're burnt out.
0: Yep. The
1: The parents expect us to do all of this. The principals expect us. And so this really touches on what Marie Bowen used to talk about in yep. terms of anxious systems produce anxious adults yep. or anxious kids.
0: Yeah. Not okay? only that, And then they wonder why kids aren't functioning or don't have the same attention span or there's no more school nurse. There's no more arts. There's no therapists in the school. If there is, it's like maybe one person for like 300 kids. Like. There's zero support. And then you're asking these teachers to be all rules at all times.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, no. Look, I mean, it, it's, 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 but again, that isn't the problem. Right. The teachers and the schools are part of a bigger system, which That's is our right. society. So it's, the problem is not, you know, some people would say, oh, it's the principal's fault.
0: No, it's not the principal's right. fault. It's, it's the mayor's fault. And it's it, like you say, you can just keep going back and back and back. And
1: it, it, it's, it, Anxious systems you know, are complex. But the point of this is in the film, in the film, any therapist worth their salt should have been able to read that room a million miles away. What do I mean by that? The therapist, and, he, and it's a movie, but the therapist should have known, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to hit these parents with a two by four across the head that I've been working with your kid. Oh, by the way, we haven't told you. <laughs> okay. Right. Oh, oh, and by the way, we're going to ask you to take your kids out of the school. They should have prepared. But what happens you see, this, the parents start fighting right. in the office. That is not because they have a bad marriage. That is because they had a two by four hit them about their kid, who they're already anxious about. So, what do you have? You have a you you, you probably have a situation where you have an anxious therapist who knows they've got to deliver really, you know, not great news. An anxious principal who who you know doesn't want to be there, and you have two anxious parents. There's no leadership there. There's no one calming the waters. And then it just gets worse because when when the mother, God bless her, you know, took what I would consider to be a wise, albeit a little anxious um, approach to this. And she said, what did she say? Um, She said something about herself. Um. Uh, oh, when, when he was born, we spent too much attention. Remember she, yes, she said that, right. oh, right from yeah, the minute. We
0: were, he, he was our first and we were so nervous all the time. And, you know, and, whenever he would scrape his knee, like, right. And,
1: and, and by the way, um, it was only when I retrained in family systems therapy that I asked questions about um, uh, how were you doing uh, in, um, in utero when, the, when your first child was in utero or your second child or before you uh, were pregnant how much anxiety was in the family. Before I discovered family systems, I never considered uh, in utero or before the baby was born. Murray Bowen was the one to say that when the baby is born, you don't want to ask how they're doing when the baby is born because everyone is stressed when the baby is born. You want to ask what happened during the pregnancy? How are the finances? Was there any chronic health issues? What What else was happening in the family? And before the pregnancy, was it a planned pregnancy? Were there miscarriages? You're trying to understand when the baby comes plop into the world, what was happening before that because what was happening yes. before that whether through we now understand how stress and anxiety goes to, into the placenta and blah 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 and, blah, and also just uh, psychological factors we want to understand what was this child up against before they even came into the world yeah. so the mother is
0: actually providing very important
1: information what does the therapist say do you remember what the therapist says to her? no
0: how does he respond
1: like your typical therapist like you're bloody. to You know what he says? Uh, well, the evidence suggests that actually this is mostly a neurochemical thing. You, you, you don't remember he, he says that line? He says, wow. oh, actually, no, the evidence suggests how many therapists, do you know, pull that that evidence based thing? They do it all the time. They'll say, well, the evidence actually the the research suggests that. Right. And now here's the thing. Which layperson is going to go, can you show me the research so I can go look it up and see if I can, Ellie, watch any JFI talk, you'll never forget this now, watch any JFI talk when one of your clinicians stands up and says, um, the evidence suggests that, um, uh, you know, um, scratching your right ear uh, helps with clinical depression. Watch how many people in the crowd raise their hands at a JFI seminar and go, oh, can you send me the study? Um, I'd like to look at the study and I'd like to get back to you to see if it's a valid study. If it's robust, no one's going to do that.
0: (laughs) But to be look, to be totally honest, most people don't do that with most experts. They're not doing it with their mechanic. They're not doing it with their doctor. They're not doing it with the pilot of their plane, right? They're not doing it with any situation where there's a certain amount of trust involved and you're in a desperate need to get information that you need. So I would say that, you know, what, what the system, the way you're proposing, right? Like you said, everyone's beholden to find their own way. The way that you're proposing is a way that is, has to do with preventative. It has to do with long-term looking at a whole system and understanding how to treat it before it becomes chronic, like acute. But most people, like when you look at CBT or things like that, they're treating something in the moment that's already in crisis mode. They're not, and that's why they're not saying, let's look at the past. Cause looking at the past is something that you do when you're calm. And when you're able to start to like, look at the whole thing and heal it from the roots up. But most people are already like the branches falling off the tree and they're trying to just like figure out, you know, what to do in the moment. So I think there's like different things for different moments.
1: Everything you're saying is true. What I'm saying is that I think that when, whenever therapists do that thing, the mother is saying, actually, I want to take some responsibility for this, yeah, and the I therapist robs yeah. her of that by saying, "Right, don't worry about that. It's actually just your kid's brain." And he doesn't okay? even
0: address that with her. Like, I hear what you're saying. So many parents go through that. Exactly. Right? He doesn't and, calm it down.
1: And that's why I'm right. I'm I'm assuming it's an assumption on my part that he is as anxious as the parents. That's where I'm right. going with this. That. What, he, what she was doing, she was sort of saying, I think I need to take some personal responsibility and provide some perspective here because yeah. I was a very anxious young parent with my first child.
0: Right.
1: A therapist worth their salt would say, you know, let me just take some notes here. How old was your child? And, and at least listen, you don't have to be a family systems therapist, but at least listen. Right. Right. But what he does is he robs her of her agency as a parent and trumps her with his power. You see, one of the things, one of the tells with any sort of professional, Ellie, lawyers, physicians, teachers, any professional, rabbis, any professional, any anybody in a position of power, mature leaders don't push back when they're challenged. Meaning that the more mature you are, the less threatened you are by someone saying, I'm not so sure I agree with you. Right. Mature leaders are actually, okay, well, let's let's talk about that. I'm, I'm yeah. curious to hear your thoughts. Right. And mature leaders don't buckle under the challenge, but they listen to the challenge. Immature leaders feel threatened. Now, I got to say, I would put myself on closer to the immature than mature side. I'm just being honest. And when people challenge me, my tendency is to get my back up against the wall and like start throwing theory at them. Okay. And I have to really work on that. Um, so when I saw that scene, all I saw was a whole bunch of people being very anxious. And the first thing I thought of was Kevin, the kid, because yep. what's going to happen to Kevin when the parents come home, they're going to be this ball of sort of worry. And by the way, Ellie, you and I have kids. You and I have kids. Can you not relate to worrying about your kid and coming through the door? And even though your brain's going,
0: yeah, 100%. don't
1: be worried, keep it calm. It's so hard to dial that down when you're worried about your kid you love.
0: Yeah. And I also think it's so important what you're saying about leaders when that you know, a mature leader doesn't get threatened. So, but even as parents, like the place where the places where I feel confident and clear about my principles and about how I feel about this thing, my kids can push back on me however much they want about that particular thing. Right. Like, you know, to, to give an example, which is just an easy one, like kosher, I'm 100% clear that we eat only kosher food. So, for my kids to come to me and say, you know, I really want a bacon double cheeseburger, I'm not going to get freaked out. I'm just going to be like, huh, well, what is it about a bacon double cheeseburger that's interesting to you? Because, you know, I, I would love to know more about that. It's not going to freak me out because I already know what the answer is. <laughs> and I also like, I'm, I'm cool with them. I'm happy to have the conversation because I think it's interesting. But in the places where I'm not okay, those are the places where I'm going to be like, "How you know? Why are you saying that? Like, just go finish your homework," <laughs> you know, instead of engaging in some way. So I think that's a really interesting point, like not just with leadership, but also as parents. It's the place where we're not okay that we're going to freak out when our kids bring up that subject.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. Um, so what you know, this this idea of um, you know that. You have come to a place, Ellie, within yourself, of uh, clarity in principles and action. Because it's not just a principle of kashrut, but that you live that way, and that you eat that way, and that you're not sitting there in an existential, like angst every day in terms of you know, the, oh, I want that bacon double cheeseburger so bad. It's like, right. This is what I do. This is what I do, and I've spent many years thinking about this. Um, this is what. Um, uh, you know Bowen and Freeman all these guys talk about it. finished and unfinished business mm-hmm. finished business is when there's a rapprochement within yourself and you're just not threatened by different ideas it's like oh that's your way this is my way right and that's your way and that's and that's fine and i don't even have to like your way by the way yeah but i don't need you to be a certain way to calm me down Unfinished business is exactly what you said. So if anybody ever gets confused when I use the term unfinished family business and finished business, finished business is that somehow you went through a grueling process where you, you inherited unfinished business from your family that went back many generations. You worked through it and you came to a place. You came to a place where you can say peace. Peace, more or less. And I don't need you, my child, my spouse, my boss, to be a certain way to calm me down. Unfinished business is I need you to do something because I am so rattled by this thing mm-hmm. that when you do that thing, you're throwing gasoline on my um, ambiguity or my confusion about this thing. Right. So if you're ever confused about where your unfinished business is in your family, what I tell my <laughs> clients is, right. whenever you get really worked up and you're frothing at the mouth and you're, you're losing your, that is unfinished business in your family that, that's, that got passed down. Right. And the good news is, if you can identify that, right, you can do something about that. The problem with a lot of people, and I hope I offer this to my clients in my practice, they come in with, an, with a, a lack of understanding of unfinished is, mm-hmm. right? right? You know. Um, like this and, just bugs me. Or, or my why would my spouse do that? Why are they make if they love me, they wouldn't right. make me feel so guilty and bad, right. right? Why don't you love me? You said you loved me when we were dating. Right. Why are you so mean? Like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. If you can help people appreciate that that there is a knot, uh, like a shoe knot that was passed down through the generations, it's in your lap, and let's say you're alive, God willing, 75, 80, 85 years, you have an opportunity to undo the knot. If Bowen was correct, if you don't undo that knot, which is fine, you will pass on that knot some a little bit more to one child some a little bit less but they'll both inherit that knot and it'll be up to them now to see what they do with that knot right. and so you're, you're you're touching on um such an important part um of um of the work that i do anyways but um of where, where this film goes and and how the film sort of weaves its way through um this sort of projection of anxiety in particular onto kevin but what's so great about the film ellie and maybe, maybe you can touch on this, is how each of the parents are all going through the same thing. The film yeah. sets you up to think it's about Kevin, but it's no. not about Kevin. It's an anxious family, and they all yeah. manifest the anxiety differently. It's yeah, beautiful. now that
0: I just started to see that as you were talking like that, each of the siblings coped with their um, intense father in different ways, right? Gil becomes, tries to be the super dad. Um, the other woman gets into a marriage where she gets divorced and her line is men are scum, right? Actually,
1: to the point where she tells her son, which by the way is heartbreaking. In 1989, it was heartbreaking when Helen told her son that you just have a rotten father. He's just a rotten man. It was heartbreaking then because um, that was right around the time. I don't know if my dad and I, I, you know what, I don't think my, when I saw this film, my dad and I at that point just did not have a relationship. Mm -hmm. So I related to it, but in sort of a dysfunctional way, meaning that I just have a rotten dad. In 2020, what broke my heart is that too many people would agree with her that there are just rotten parents and then there are good parents. Um, And so, uh, yes, so you're right. Helen Helen manifests her anxiety as a lack of awareness in herself in terms of how did my marriage end in this way and why am I so angry and you know all this unfinished stuff and she projects it onto her kid right and you see that how that manifests in his life how he's sort of very shy and introverted and uh, a heartbreaking scene that telephone call with his uh with his dad um Gil and then um who do we have here oh then we have Susan
0: right who like marries a father figure
1: except did you catch her did you catch her anxious thing in the film she there's one little thing she does that is the tell of what yeah. her thing is yeah. What is it?
0: She, she eats the, the she, food that's hidden in the closet she eats the junk food that no one in her house is allowed to have
1: she's all skinny and kind of sultry in the film but when no one's looking she's got that thing where she has her shoebox of goodies that you know it's kind of like f you it's it's the way but she I- sort of rebels
0: But I thought even more of a tell was when she was describing the early parts of her relationship to her sister-in-law, where she said, um, you know, Nathan came along and and got my life together. You know, with him, he told me what to do. He got me on the straight path. I was kind of wild and untethered. And he's the one that got my life together. And she really like, she marries a father figure, you know, in this very sort of funny way. And so, you know, but then that's the part that she hates about him, right?
1: (laughs) My entire book, I spend a good third of the book saying, uh, using Jerry Maguire though, as the film, Jerry Maguire as the, the metaphor that, and this is not, and this is very important. It is not a fault of marriage, but it is the way that we are drawn. When, when you call your friend after a second date and your friend says, what did you think about Jim? And you say, Oh, Jim, he's so fantastic. He's so great. He's so, and, and she's, what do you, what do you like about Jim? Oh, he's so cute. He laughs at my, whatever, she, whatever you're saying after that second date, what my late supervisor used to say is, there is something about that person that subconsciously and consciously, they complete you in some way that you can't complete yourself. You might not be aware of it. You might even be aware of it. I'll give you an example. I, I use this in many of the talks. When I met Elisa, even before we went our first stage, I knew she was in medical school. I grew up in a family where doctors were just like they could do no no harm. I mean, doctors were just the uh, epitome. And if I figured subconsciously, if I could marry a doctor, right, I just go right up the chart in my family as you know <laughs> the, the anointed one. Without going to medical school, by the way, and also and also th- financial security. And if I ever get the flu, I can ask for questions. All of that was baked into the cake before we went on a date. Mm-hmm. So when Uh, Susan was saying that Nathan did all these things. Viewers of the film are going, oh, I am so above that. You know, I'm just, when I married, that's BS. We all do it to a certain degree. And I spoke to someone, a colleague of mine uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, a Hasidic Jew. He has pais, the whole thing. He's a family systems. uh, He's a professor and a marriage therapist. And I asked him, what about the Hasidim who get set up, um, the ultra-Orthodox Jews who get set up on hotel dates where the families do shidduchim, uh, they bring them together. Does this process also play itself out, this idea of um, of uh, people court? And he said uh, it's at a different level because there's more work being done by the families to bring um Uh, young people together so there's more work on the back end but he goes even there there's an immaturity in both people that they you know like she's projecting onto the Talmud Chachim like he's a great man he's going to give to me the things that I lack right because he's such a great wise man and 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 he's doing the same thing about her she's going to bring me great kids and she'll be a great mother they know nothing about each other at this point Okay, And one of the arguments that I make in my book, which is standing on the shoulder of giants, because David Snarch makes this argument, is that every marriage starts to crumble when the realization, when the fantasy ends, when one person wants to stop playing the role of um, of, uh, 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 being something for you to prop you up. That's when everything starts to change. And that's when uh, couples get very, uh it gets very yeah, shaky You could either say couples. that's when
0: the marriage ends or that's when the marriage actually begins.
1: That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, David right. Starch yeah, used to say, yeah, David Snarch's line, which I just love this line. I just, oh, it's such a good line. Uh, everybody, um everybody gets married for the wrong reasons. It takes being married to find out what the right reasons are, mm-hmm. which I, I just love that idea. And I think that that's what you hear Susan saying. Yeah. I married Nate. Nathan for these things, but you could see Susan is becoming more competent now in her life. She doesn't need Nathan to control her. She wants to be more, she wants to have more creativity. She wants her kid to be more playful. And Nathan is looking at Susan and you know what he's thinking? You're not the woman I married. Why are you doing this to me? I
0: married somebody who needed me to get their life together.
1: Now he doesn't say that by the way, right? Because he's too immature himself to hear that. All he sees is why is she being so mean? Why is she changing the rules? And if Nathan read my book, which he didn't because it wasn't written back then, but if Nathan would have read my book, he would have known that that was inevitable because in every marriage, someone is going to grow. Yeah, It's going to happen and they're going to grow and they're going to say, you know, I know when we were 22, I said, I believed in X, Y, Z, but I'm rethinking that now. And if you understand that's just part of the process, right? It's going to be hard, but it's not going to be so personal. Like, why are you doing this to me? What did I do to deserve this? Now, it's hard, Ellie. I'm not saying it's easy in terms of what what do you do when when someone starts to grow in a marriage or or change their thinking on something. But it is inevitable. So the question is either you prepare for it or you do, la, 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 this isn't happening, it won't happen to me sort of a thing. Anyways, oh, my. Okay, so. (laughs) Do you,
0: <laughs> Larry, good. do you want to do you, so do you want, much to get into. I know, this movies. No, a, I'm do you, you want to
1: touch on uh, Oh, my God, it's a love. It. Ellie, it's I a love
0: know, it. I know. We didn't even get to all the characters. Do you think we should do part two? I mean. There's it? so much to get into. Like, we haven't even talked about the teens who get married. We haven't talked about Larry and his son, Cool, and how the father eventually goes to his son for advice. There's just so much, like, interesting stuff to look at. So, Maybe we just do like five more minutes, and then maybe we can do more next week.
1: Or you know what, how about this? I'm fine with um, going on or picking a movie. Maybe uh, post it, ask. And if we get no comments, we'll just go with our gut. And if not, we can go to another film. Okay. So, So do you want to just touch on Larry's character? If you could just touch on Larry, because I think that um, that went in a direction that I I didn't remember. So I'm just kind of curious to hear your thought. What do you think about Larry?
0: So Larry is the youngest kid. Um, He's presented as, you know, he's the sibling that the other siblings basically feel uncomfortable with because they feel like he's the favorite, right? Which is kind of perfect in this Parsha that we're in with Joseph and the brothers. Hmm. Um, So he's the favorite. The father sees that he can do no wrong, no matter what Larry asks him for, he gives him And all the other siblings see the manipulation behind the, um, you know, that Larry's doing with his father. Um, You know, I think that he's clearly um, got some issues in terms of gambling addiction. He he clearly is not well in certain ways. Um, And he shows up to the, you know, the first time we see him, he shows up to a family event with a young son in tow that nobody even knew he had, and the kid is like eight years old or something, like it, you know. So they're all like, "You're what?" Um,
1: and worse, he tells the kid to stay outside and forgets. <laughs> I think that his son yeah, is outside. Like,
0: yeah, he basically doesn't relate to his son at all because he's just so invested in himself being the son. He has no idea how to re- how to relate to himself as an adult or a parent. It's like the lifeline for him is the relationship with his dad in a certain way as the as the kid who just gets what he needs when he needs it um and so think- we sort of see throughout the film that eventually larry um that he's owes lots of money to people in the mafia and he doesn't know how to do it he's never had a job we know this he just kind of lives off gambling you know profits and whatever his father gives him whenever he asks so he's really kind of a, I, I actually, you know, he, there's a lot of pathos for his character, even though the other siblings, when we see it through their eyes, they're just like the guy's a jerk. Um, you know, he's just manipulating our father all the time and gets all the love from our father that none of us ever got. That's really what you see from them is, is he's the one that gets, that can do no wrong, whereas all of them. They were always like under the pressure and like either ignored or like you know being told that they were doing everything wrong so it's kind of a unique setup in that way
1: yeah um yeah that, that, that was a good summary um of larry i think we're uh i think uh where what the movie does a good job of doing and i hear this in my practice all the time is this idea of my parent loved uh my brother more than they loved me It is not an issue of love. Frank does not love Larry more than he loves Susan. He is more anxiously focused on Larry. He identifies with Larry for some psychological reason that we don't know. So let me be clear. I don't know why he does that. But here's what I know about families. The myth that we treat all our kids the same is a myth. Right. The only people who say that don't have kids, right. okay? Because there is no such thing as treating all your kids the same. Um, you don't have to wade into deep uh, uh, research on sibling position to know that. Right. Um, and you and it, I again, have to, to
0: clarify. Like that doesn't mean you love them more or less. You it has nothing to do
1: with love. It has to do with
0: relationships. The behaviors it, in the relationship are different.
1: Look. You know, I was just talking to a client a couple of weeks ago, Um, their teenager has acne and they're having a really tough time with it. And they know they are. They they, they did some, they've done good work with, um, you know, they've done some good work. So they're aware of it. Right. But just because you're aware of something doesn't reduce the the emotionality about it. They have another kid who didn't have acne. Yeah. It just so happens, la-di-da, you know where this is going, that they had acne too as a teenager and their parent also focused on their acne. Right. So why? So here's the question. This is one of the one of the great contributions that Murray Bowen made to the world of psychology. Murray Bowen and Salvador Minuchin and Jay Haley, all the great family therapists, what they said. The big question is, and parents ask me this all the time, how is it that I have four kids and they're all different? You know, one's a robber, one's a cop, one's a, like and that's really the question that's trying to be answered in this film. There's yeah. four siblings, they're all so different. Where the film where the film goes off, I think, is that they make Larry the devil, Steve Martin in a way is the angel, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like it's quite clear that when Larry leaves and the father goes, he's not coming back to his kid. A heartbreaking scene. Right. Um, a very bad message personally, I think, to um, send to the, you know, a child. I don't know how his father, I don't know how he knows that first of all, right? right? This idea, so I'm not sure. Any anyway, But pushing that aside, um, I'm gonna to read to you, Ellie, a line from the film that I think depicts the, the, the whole thing. I'm not so sure the filmmaker intended this to be, but I thought it, it depicted the entire film and how Frank relates to each of his kids. And here's the line, he's talking to Steve Martin when they're having that one moment at the baseball uh, diamond. And um, he this is what he says to Steve Martin, we thought you had polio when you were a child I hated having to go through that. I hated the caring and I hated the worrying. It's not for me. Parental worry, it never, never ends. Right he's he's saying he's talking about himself now about all his kids and each of his kids when they had a problem would have triggered that idea i hate i i have no way of managing my anxiety about love and worry ellie you and i have talked about this on previous podcasts with love comes worry when he says i hate having to go through that he's talking about love He's not not talking about love. He is talking about love because with love comes worry, and what he's saying is something about his upbringing did not prepare him for the ups and downs and the curveballs to having children, and so he did the best that he could by, in some cases, with Larry, over focusing on Larry and being too um, accommodating to Larry and not being tough enough, and perhaps with Steve Martin or Gil or Gill being too hard on. Gill
0: yeah he like broke uh, his he broke his teeth on his first kid in terms of you know the intensity of that love and worry
1: and and well I mean I I think I'm not sure if Helen is the first it's either Helen or Gill I, I'm not sure which one but what we do know is that generally not always um, uh, uh, whoever whatever gender or sex your your child is the same as the parent there'll be more of a um, of of, uh, an anxious connection. So for example, I don't have daughters. So um, if my, if, if my eldest Izzy is going through something, I'm an eldest, he's male, I'm male, there's going to be more of like this, I can relate to that. If I had a daughter it would be diffused a bit. It would still be there, but it would be diffused a bit because it's an experience that I never went through. I never had sisters. Right. So this is some of the research. We're not going to get into it now. It'll come up in other episodes. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff about how come kids turn out differently in their family, even though they have the same biological parents. A fascinating, fascinating sort of you know, topic. But anyways, what a film.
0: Yeah, totally fun. Um, OK, so we'll figure out whether or not we're going to do a part two. Uh, or move on to another film. Um, Yeah, so much to chew on in this movie in terms of like um, looking at the whole picture. And that's what I loved about it. It gives us that, like you said, three generations. It gives us a much bigger picture. It's not just one family story. You're seeing the same dynamics play out in different ways and throughout the whole system. So, that would hey, really Elliot, cool. I have um,
1: I'm gonna suggest something here. If I send you the 10 relationship rules that are, con- I think it's connected to this film. If yep. I send you from my newsletter, could you post and just with events. a link saying if you want to sign up for his newsletter, yep. go here. This is from his last one. I'll send you those 10. Um,
0: awesome. Okay. Yeah, okay. Let's do it. Okay. Amazing. Thanks. Have Barbara. a great week. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. Happy Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. (laughs) Okay.